0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, founder at Majority. My guest today, Melissa Proctor, Chief Marketing Officer of the Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena. She is the author of Ball Girl to CMO, and the meaning of that title will become clear during our conversation. As CMO of an NBA franchise, Melissa's responsibilities are vast, from day-to-day marketing to team branding, advertising promotions, managing the internal video production and creative agency known as Hawk Studio, fan experience, game day production, and also community outreach and fighting for social justice and racial equality, which you'll hear us talk about. A brand leader recognized for her creativity, work ethic, and empathy, Melissa started her career with Turner Broadcasting, serving in senior brand development and strategy positions for Turner Entertainment Networks, Cartoon Network, and Turner Media Group. Her story is full of courage and inspiration. She was the subject of a 2021 ESPN profile titled The Revolutionary Path of Hawk CMO Melissa Proctor. In 2019, the Caribbean American Arts Foundation awarded Melissa with a Captains of Industry Award. And there she got to give a speech in front of honorees like civil rights leader, Andrew Young. She is an artist, a mother, an author, a speaker. This is Melissa Proctor and I talking to ourselves. Well, I really enjoyed um, the process of of just preparing for this conversation and there were things I knew about you, but I think digging in a little bit deeper, uh, the more I learned about you, the more I was just really excited to talk to you today. So first of all, just thank you for joining me.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: All right, Melissa, we start every uh, episode with the same question. Melissa Proctor, where are you from and what did your parents do?
1: I am from Miami, Florida, and my parents were uh, both West Indian. My mom was a nurse, RN my whole life, and my father did a number of odd jobs, but mainly was a computer programmer at a bank, and I just remember him sorting checks.
0: Nice. Uh, Your first contact with the NBA began around the age of 15. Tell us about your I can't think of a better word for it than harassment. Tell us about your harassment of the <laughs> Miami Heat and the motivation behind that harassment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when I was uh, about 15, I was in a high school in Miami called Design and Architecture Senior High, where we focused on design and I was an artist by trade. So graphics and everything was it. And because of that, I never did any athletics, but I always um, you know, loved art. And when I was around 14 or so, I had a cousin who loved watching basketball on TV. So she introduced me to the sport. As I mentioned, my parents were West Indian. So I did not grow up watching football or baseball or any American sport at all. Um, And so that was kind of my first education in basketball. And so when I was 15, I remember going to my mom, telling her I wanted a job. And uh, she said, okay, Mel, you know, you can get a job, but whatever you do, it needs to be in whatever you want to be for the rest of your life. And I think at that point I was volunteering with her. I would go with her to the hospital, was a candy striper. And I knew that medicine was not my thing. Like, didn't like blood, didn't like the patients. And so, you know, I thought about it and I told her, I said, you know, I really want to be the first female coach in the NBA. Because I would watch these games and I never saw women on the sidelines. And I figured, oh, we should have a woman coach. That would be awesome. That should be me. Never played basketball a day in my life. And so she said, okay, go get a job in the NBA. And so I didn't know anyone uh, in the league, didn't know any players, had never been to an NBA game, but I literally like went to the white pages, let my fingers do the walk-in, found a 1-800 number, called, you know, figured out who I needed to talk to. They sent me to someone in community relations first, kept calling that guy and he was like, hey kid, I don't know what you would do, you know, here. Uh, Try the equipment manager, they have ball boys. And so I got connected to Jay Sable, who was the equipment manager at the time. And uh, he he was like, hey, you know, send a letter, let us know your interest. So I wrote a letter and then I would draw on the letter. Then I started writing multiple letters, just really wanting him to understand how much I really wanted this opportunity. And then, you know, I kept calling. And one day I called so much. He said, if you call me one more time, I'm not going to hire you. Please stop calling. And so I stopped for a little bit and then I kept on calling. And then finally, I think I just warmed down. And then one day we had a conversation and I remember him explicitly saying, look, I don't know what you're going to do. I only have ball boys. You're a girl. Um, This is grunge work. You get there early. You have to stay late. You have to keep up your grades in school because that was important to him. But he was like, you know, it's mopping up sweat, folding towels, you know, helping a rebound. Oh, and by the way, it doesn't pay. And I was like, well, how's this a job? It doesn't pay. But the ball kids work for tips, you know, every night. So if everyone does a good job collectively, then everyone would get tipped out at the end of the night. And I told him I was still really excited about it. And all of that was fine for me. And so one day he finally invited me to come to a preseason game. I think it was the Heat playing the Orlando Magic, if I'm not mistaken. And it was at the Miami Arena. I had never been in the arena for a sporting event before. And it was like watching TV come to life. That was the beginning of my career in sports.
0: You know, I I like to think that for all of us, there's ways that we change as we get older. And then there's the ways that we never change. Um, Are you still someone who has a hard time taking no for an answer?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't really like it. Um, But I think more than that, and I didn't really, it took many years later for me to understand, but I didn't know what branding was. I didn't know what brand strategy was. I went to college at Wake Forest and was a communications major. Um, Got a job in marketing afterwards. And they said, you know, you sold yourself so well to us. And what I did to get that job was I branded myself. And I didn't know that I had. But years later, I'm talking to the equipment manager. He was like, I remember your letters. You would draw like, you know, heat logos and pictures of players and basketballs. And it made me stand out and was differentiating. And so if anything that I know that I've taken with me is that idea of, you know, even now if I'm speaking to someone, they really want to work in sports marketing, they're telling me why they love sports. And and I was like, that's great, but you haven't marketed yourself. You know, you send the same resume that everyone else sends. And then I'm like, what are you doing to stand out and be different? And I think from that point, I did that. And to this day, whether I know it or not, that's very much my personal brand DNA.
0: It is so interesting when you want to break into any profession um, and you don't have experience. And so there's all this kind of counterintuition that sets in because you're nervous. And I mean, I see it all the time. I'll interview someone who wants to break into marketing and they'll show up in, you know, a suit and tie. And you go like, man, we don't wear this here. Like this is a creative uh, environment, but they're showing you they care and they're, and they're looking up resumes online. And what is a resume supposed to look like? What is it supposed to sound like? And so you actually fall into this sort of trap of conformity. Like what does a candidate look and sound like versus how am I going to be the first ever me that this, that this uh, um, employer has ever met?
1: or just be authentically yourself. I mean, obviously every culture and every environment calls for different things. So, you know, there may be some marketing jobs where without that suit, they would be like, yeah, you're a little too creative for us, you know, right. and I've gotten that energy in the past as well. But, you know, you got to go to where you're wanted and your energy and your your brand is wanted.
0: You know, you talked about some of the tasks of being a a ball girl, um, the first ever ball girl of the Miami Heat. And it's not a glamorous job. It's sweat and it's towels and it's rebounding and it's grunt work and you know when we're starting out we do jobs that involve menial tasks. Um one thing I've observed as I've kind of you know gotten older is you know whether it was for myself or when you see other people who you hire for entry level positions you start to see this pattern of like you know if you can't do the little things right you can't do the big things right. Um Is that a POV that resonates with you as someone who started off with these tasks that were, you know, not glamorous?
1: You know, it's funny because I never saw it as not glamorous. To me, it was like the most amazing job I've ever had. And sometimes I still look back at it that way. And I think what, why I feel that way is because while, yes, you're in the locker room, you're, you know, doing laundry, handing out Gatorade, whichever, you know, I'm sitting courtside every game. And this was like when the Bulls and the Knicks were playing the Heat and it was like Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Like I looked at the last dance and I was like, oh, man, that was like my life. But I'm sitting there night after night with you know Sylvester Stallone or, you know, you name it, sitting by Magic Johnson, sitting behind me, having conversations with them. I remember once it was Jimmy Buffett who would come to every game. He was a season ticket member. I had no clue who he was. And people would ask him for his autograph. I'm like, yo, man, who are you? You know. Now I'll go to Margaritaville. I'm like, I knew that guy. Like, that's awesome. But what I loved about it is I had the ability to interact with players. Stan Van Gundy was an assistant coach at the time. And I would be out there on the court with him because all the guys were on the back. So I'm, you know, setting picks and, you know, helping them run plays for the players and learning about the game of basketball, which is what I truly wanted. At the time, I thought I was going to be a coach. So, I'm in the huddles, you know, they're calling the 22nd timeout, and Pat Riley's writing up a play on a notepad. Like, I'm taking the paper from that notepad and taking it home with me and making up a little folder or binder to learn about the game of basketball. So, for me, I never even saw this menial task. It was like the golden opportunity to be able to get um, exposure and experience and to be able to see something firsthand that most people can only dream about. And where I think it served me most is the ability to interact with anyone from janitorial staff to security to the billionaire, you know, owner to whomever else and everyone in between and have the same level of respect and understanding and appreciation for them as people. So if there's anything that I've taken into my current job, it's that. Like if they asked me to, you know, make a mop, we used to make mops out of towels and uh, broomsticks, (laughs) long rooms. They said, hey, come make a mop and mop up a sweat at the game tonight. I would be ecstatic to do it. So for me, it's always the difference of never being so far removed that you forget where you came from. But, you know, totally agree, if you're not able to do the small things, you can't necessarily do the big ones, but I, I almost feel like there's an upcoming generation that's not about the grunt work at all. It's just about the, let me become the next Zuckerberg tomorrow and be a billionaire, and that's the new way.
0: Yeah, Melissa, how do I become the CMO? Well, the way to become the CMO is that's the wrong question. It's how do I, how do I be additive? You know, what can I do to help? How do I, how do I, um, what, where can my gifts be most, you know, contributive, you know?
1: Yeah. I people, whenever people say that, I'm like, I want to be a CMO and I'm like, why? It's always my first like, Why do you want to be CMO? Like, well, I want to decide the strategy. And I was like, well, there are plenty of marketing jobs that are strategic. You don't need to be a CMO to do that. And I would tell the story about how when I, um, Uh, my current CEO and I were having a conversation. I was a VP of brand strategy. Then I got into like a business strategy role with the Hawks. And, you know, there were some changes happening on the creative side and marketing. We had gotten a lot of new projects coming on board. And he was like, Hey, you know, I want you to be CMO. And I was like, me, it's like like 30 some at the time. And I was like, why me? And he said, because you don't want it. And I thought it was the most awesome answer. And he's like, you know, so often people are driven by the perception of power or what they think the money will be, or, you know, being able to say that there's something based on everything else. And I have a mantra that says, I just want to make dope shit. That's what I'm here to do. I mean, raise my hand, take on tasks that no one else wanted, but that's always been my driver. And so he was like, it's because of that, that you're perfect for this opportunity. And the person that was in the role previously did it very differently they never missed a game. They were always there. And I was like, look, I'm a single mom at the time. I have a, my daughter was super young and he was like, oh, you gotta do this job in your way. that's why we want you for it. And it was the best experience ever. And I'm grateful now looking back on that because I didn't think I was ready. You know, no one ever, it's like that imposter syndrome. You don't know that you're prepared for a particular opportunity, but I was more than prepared. And then walking into it, I've learned a ton since then, but never, being so far removed from where I started.
0: That's amazing. And, and simultaneously, as you're coming into your own as a ball attendant and you're um, you're enjoying all the perks of being courtside, which as you describe the job, I'm like, yeah, shit, that is, there are menial tasks, <laughs> but I would close my agency right now to go, I might go be a ball boy for the Hawks tomorrow. That sounds pretty good to me. Um, but, but as you're doing that, you're also exploring your artistic gifts and your artistic te- uh, uh, passions Uh, Tell me how Dennis Rodman helped you launch your first side hustle.
1: (laughs) Well, not solely Dennis Rodman individually. He was definitely my, one of my favorite players for the league. Um, But I had always been an artist from middle school, high school. And I had um, a, a good friend of the family was a lawyer. And I remember I was like creating artwork and selling them to people. And he was like, you need a manager. I was like, okay. So, like at 16, I had a manager that was helping me to put together contracts for my work. I was displaying them in different galleries and exhibitions around Florida at the time. And I would design these uh like prints of my original work. And then I would do Christmas cards every year, but I would give them you know, to the players. And it was actually Tim Hardaway, it was one of the first players who you know saw my work and it's like, hey, my wife and I would love, you know, one of your pieces uh in our house. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And so I created this. It was like a four piece um, uh, acrylic on burlap painting that I had done and they bought it and hung it in their permanent collection in their house. And it was like, oh wow, you can kind of be an artist too. And I don't want to be a struggling artist because growing up in the arts, I saw a lot of that and people who had a lot of passion, but I was like, oh, I want a real job, but I still want to be creative. And I always kind of struggled with that because I didn't know what that looked like. but yeah, and it's funny because Dennis Robin was one of my favorite players in the league at the time. And I remember doing a, a, paint, a portrait of him for him. It was like color pencil. Um, it had like a Pearl Jam tape. And I just read his book and he did this whole big thing in the wedding dress. Um, and I, I loved it. And so I created this piece of art and we played the Bulls one day and I gave it to him outside the locker room. And he like looked at it. And I remember he had like glitter fingernails and like a purple backpack. And he's like, I love this. I'm going to put this up in my house in Chicago. I was like, wow, this is so cool.
0: This is, I swear to God, my last question about the ball attendant era. (laughs) And it's the most important question of all. Based on your personal experience, who is the sweatiest player in NBA history?
1: hands down Patrick Ewing. Like, <laughs> there's no question. And it was funny because every time we would play the Knicks, like he would just sit there and sweat like buckets would just drip when he was at the free throw line. And I remember like we would talk about it <laughs> as, as ball kids, like, oh man, you got to double up that mop tonight. You know, Patrick's out there. So we're <laughs> you're going back and forth. And I remember one game in particular, um, the Heat were playing the Knicks And Kurt Thomas was on the Heat team, and then he went over to the Knicks. And I remember I was, it was a fast break, and the guys were going back and forth, and then I think someone fouled, and they were at the free throw line, and Patrick's doing what Patrick does, and just sweat dripping. And I see it, and I was like, all right, so I run out to, you know, mop it up on the free throw line, and I had to keep going over it, because it was wet. You know, you can see. A ball kid sometimes will put their sneakers on there to make sure it's not slippery. It was super slippery. And I was so focused on trying to get it out. My mop broke. Like the whole stick came out the top. And then the play started coming my way. <laughs> so I remember I had to pick up the mop from the floor and then grab the stick and run before I became an ESPN highlight. And I looked over and Kurt Thomas is dying laughing on on the bench. Like all the players are dying laughing at me. And I was like, oh, oh, Patrick Ewing. Oh, Patrick, never forget it.
0: That's amazing. So a- after studying art at Wake Forest, uh, you catch wind of an internship opportunity at Turner Broadcasting. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, the not so traditional resume you used to get that internship, very much in the vein of where we started this conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so. So at Wake, I actually went to Wake Forest on an art scholarship, but I was a communications major. But, you know, I loved writing and scholarly articles and, you know, it was very academic at the time. And I did, I was a studio art minor. And so I was still, you know, pursuing my art. Um, But (laughs) the funny part, you know, senior year, you don't know what you want to do with your life. Every summer in college, I would go back to Miami and volunteer with the Heat, helping out with the draft, free agency, you know, all different sorts of stuff. But that senior year, I was like, well, I'm going to work for the NBA. That was my goal, ultimately. And so I applied for a management training program at the NBA headquarters. Um, and then just to be safe, I applied to stay at Wake Forest I'm in the comms department because that I loved communications. I was great with the deans and the professors. Um, and I did an interview for the NBA gig, had Pat Riley and Alonzo Mourning write me letters of recommendation. And then I did my interview. I thought it went well. And they called me back. And they said, you know, you were awesome. You're too creative for us. We're a business. And I was crushed because that was my goal. Um, Later, I learned, you know, a lot more about the NBA. And I was like, I probably wasn't the right cultural fit, you know, at that time. And then Wake Forest turned me down and said, you're too, uh, we we think you're destined for bigger and better things. So We're going to, you're using this as a crutch, which I was, you know, like, we're not going to give you this crutch to fall back on. And so it was actually a woman named Beth Hutchins in the communications department at Wake that told me about Turner. And they had an internship program called the T3 program, the Turner Trainee Team, and uh, all it was like a huge flyer that said, send us your talent in a project. And she knew that I was creative. She's like, I saw this and thought of you. You know, I think you should apply. I didn't know what Turner was. i never been in Atlanta, kind of watched TV, but I knew CNN. I knew the brands. I just didn't know the parent company name. And so I did my research and was intrigued by it. And so in order to send my talent in a project, my first thought was, I'm going to make a Powerpuff girl that looks like me because they don't look like me. And I can't sew for shit, so that was terrible, but I ended up designing a Powerpuff Girl. She had locks, was holding a little briefcase, and I was gonna sew it, and then have the briefcase contain slides of my artwork, because that was my talent, so my project. I bought all the materials and started sewing, and it was not for me. <laughs> and I knew very quickly that this was not gonna be a good thing. And so I thought about it, and I was like, oh, you're a designer, just design something. And I had an IBM ThinkPad. And with it, I designed a magazine. It was a TV guide all about myself and my brand. And I included my writing samples, that sketch of that Powerpuff Girl, um, all of the I did prints of my artwork. I wrote a bio about myself. I had some creative writing samples from a class I took in college. Um, pictures of my parents and family at the time. And when I finished putting it together, I had so much fun in building this. I called it a T3 TV guide. Building it out um, that I, when I completed it there was a woman who uh worked in the printing office at wake forest library and she was like this is so amazing i'm gonna print these for you for free i'll make like 20 of them and i was like i only need one she's like no you gotta give this i want one for myself you gotta give them to people and so i'm glad that she did that because i still have like two left but it was one of the most amazing things that i had created and when i send it in to turner They said, you sold yourself so well to us, we think you would do an amazing job of selling our content to consumers. And that's how I got my first job in marketing. I never took a marketing class in college because it was a different sort of path at Wake. Um, But yeah, that was it. And so I I have a book that I wrote from ball girl to CMO and I actually wanted to include that uh, T3 TV guide in the back. So many people are like, hey, how did you get your job? What do you do? And I was like, you got to stand out. And so by creating that, and it was more the love of why I made it to know that, you know, it can still inspire people to this day. That was like 2002. So, you know, 20 years ago to now, like it still resonates. And that's awesome.
0: From Ballgirl to CMO available on Amazon, wherever, you get, wherever you get your books. Is there an audio, is there an audio version?
1: There isn't an audio one yet. It's funny because everyone was like, you should read it. And I was like, I respect VO talent. And I know that I am not that. Um, but yeah, I think I'm going to work on one for this year. That's one of my goals.
0: That's awesome. Now, uh, after some years at Turner, uh, in 2016, you're promoted to chief marketing officer of the Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena, which brings us to present day. I think let's just start with this because I think there's some mystery about how marketing jobs compare in the sports world. Um, so just for listeners, what are, maybe what are some of the primary tasks and objectives of the CMO of a professional sports team and how similarly or dissimilarly might you compare to being the CMO of a a traditional consumer brand?
1: You know, it's funny because I don't think there's anything traditional about a CMO title anywhere right now because it really just depends on your industry and where you are and what's happening. And so, you know, I think my job before the pandemic and during the pandemic and after are almost three different jobs. Um, Ultimately, at that level, it's motivating and managing a team of leaders. You know, I can't do all things. And so, I spend most of my time in meetings, answering emails, lots of Zooms. Um, but you know, overall, people will say the idea is you know butts and seats. That's traditional viewpoint of a CMO for a sports team, or for me, it's really more about building the brand and having the brand storytelling that helps drive relevance that ultimately will lead to butts and seats. Of course, there's a lot on the digital marketing side to ensure you know that ticket sales happen. But working with our corporate partnership team, really being able to tell our brand story working with the community um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, during the pandemic, I mentioned we shifted from like a live events team to really being a community-driven team. So We couldn't get people together for live events. And so learning more, getting deeper in that space uh, was important as well, just, you know, cause-related and purpose-driven marketing. But, you know, the combination for me as CMO of an NBA team, when I tell people, I have about nine different departments that report to me, and it's everything from our game day presentation so thinking of our you know, PA and what's happening in the arena, mascot dance team, it's in all of the amazing uh, content that happens on the boards, whether it's video content, graphics that you see to our Hawk Studios team that creates a lot of that content or an internal creative agency where they're focused on all of our video and creative motion graphics, all of our social content as well traditional advertising and promotion, but then it extends to corporate social responsibility. It extends to, you know, basketball programs where we're doing camps and clinics around the city for youth, or Hawks at home, which is our virtual version of that. In addition to brand merchandising, so our store, every piece of merchandise, every collab that we're doing with different artists or designers in the city. Um, like it's it's expansive in what it is. And I think if I was a CMO at any consumer sports brand or maybe bigger company because we're about 400 people full time. And I think the perception of an NBA team is that you're a thousand person organization, just like, you know, the NBA would be. And I'm like, we're really small. You know, I think of it as a mom and pop with international brand relevance, which is a very interesting place to be because you're connected to the NBA, but you're still a pretty small organization, which means I wear a lot of hats. Where I think more traditionally in a bigger company, I wouldn't have as much, Uh, overview of as many different departments or things as I do, because there would be different leaders probably in place for stuff like that. Um, But the coolest part to me about sports is it's constantly innovating. So just depending on where the world is from streaming and distribution and how that's going to work to now the NFT world and, you know, sports betting and what that becomes in the future. Like there's never a point where I feel like, okay, I got it. You know, long gone are the times where there was an off season, and then people kind of went away for the summer and then came back when the season was starting up, you know, between Summer League, NBA 2K, you know, the G League, there's so many things happening. And, you know, being in this position for me is awesome because it's the perfect blend of both creative and strategy that come together to be able to impact change on all those things.
0: Yeah, and I think about it in the context of uh, working with a company like Verizon, which at its core is this, it's a retail machine and their job is about sending you to the store and purchasing plans and purchasing phones and incentivizing you with deals, and it never stops. And then there's this layer that sits over it and they do a Super Bowl spot, and the Super Bowl spot is not about phones and it's not about plans, it's about brand. And so for you, I think, I wonder how similarly the ebb and flow of, you know, you have these nightly responsibilities, you have the fan experience, your driving ticket sales, and then within any given season, how do you look at broader branding opportunities whether they be you know special content or live events or community outreach that just help further that that emotional connection between fans and team that is hard to measure but it's the reason why if somebody asks me the most powerful brand in my lifetime it's not apple and it's not nike for me it's the laker logo because i grew up a fan of the 80s lakers and so What that logo does for my heart when I see it, and I'm don't worry, I'm becoming a Hawks fan now that I'm in Atlanta, you know, and an Atlanta transplant. But like, my point being, like, there are these these teams are brands, and the connection, the connection that they have with people, it's it's oftentimes a lifelong connection. It's it's more powerful than a consumer brand.
1: A hundred percent. But I'd also say, you know, we talk about how sports has the power to unite people, unlike anything else, you know, I was watching the Super Bowl the other day. And it's, you know, the numbers of people all over the world that are like glued to a television set, you know, sports evokes that level of passion you mentioned, and that everything does. But I think what's, you know, interesting for me um, as the leader of that brand, you mentioned consumer products. I am probably in this seat, one of the few CMOs that cannot help define their product in any way. So if you're Verizon, you may, you know, get in on the phone, hey, here are some new things we can add services, pizza, you may work in innovation, be able to decide what toppings to put on, you know, consumer research, which great. I have no control of my products, whether we win, whether we lose, who we draft, who gets injured. And so it makes it such a different task in terms of how you build that brand, because yeah, you got to be ready for the ebbs and flows of the season, you know, and I can be aware of who's in my 150 mile radius from a marketing perspective to know what may be, you know, more relevant versus not in terms of in-game activation, but win or lose, (laughs) I still have to make sure this brand is relevant. And so it's easy and awesome when we're winning, but when we're losing, it's so challenging because, you know, you can try to lift some other levers, but, you know, these kind of got to ride the wave. And I think that's probably the biggest differentiator between being a sports CMO and working for any other product.
0: Are you pretty much at all 41 home games?
1: Uh, For the most part, I try to go to as many of them as possible. Um, I, I have a daughter and she's in school. And so sometimes it's like, hey, I might be there for the first quarter or come and just check on the team. And I'm really there to help, you know, motivate them and to also be eyes and ears and look around and say, hey, do we need to make changes here or let's evolve this or let's think about that. But I try. I don't make all of them, though.
0: That's what I'm so curious about. Like, What are your typical movements? during a home game? What are some of the things you're paying attention to that in your mind separate a successful night from a less successful night on a marketing level?
1: Well, I will say that we have a rock star team. And to be number one in fan experience within the entire NBA means that we're doing something right. And I was sitting with uh, Grant Hill one game recently and we were talking and he was like, you know how many people tell him, you know, whether commentators, ex-players, when they come to a game at State Farm Arena, they're like, This feels like a party, like it feels so different than other arenas. And I've gone to a couple of games in other cities and I get some of the differences, but we've had to evolve that over time. But really being true to Atlanta and understanding your target audience across the board and how do we keep home court advantage? That's the main goal overall. So on a game night for me, it could be anything from visiting suites or if we have any, you know, VIPs or people that are at the game that I need to make sure that I see or have a conversation with a lot of times hosting folks at games but I used to be a basketball fan that could go and have a drink and cheer for my team. And now I cannot, I can't even see the game experience anymore. Cause I'm listening out for the music. I'm wondering why there may be talent on the court after the whistle blows and we know we need to leave. Listening to the VO um, of what's playing in the building to make sure the audio is, is good. You know, understanding what the PA is saying and ensuring that if we are giving an award to someone that, you know, the way that the camera angles are on them and what's being said on the script, you know, come together. There's so many subtle nuances looking, especially with our corporate partnership team, for doing something that's a sponsored asset in arena, ensuring that that comes off without a hitch. And then understanding with the ebbs and flows of the game, they're producing it like live television. So if we're down, what are we doing in order to motivate the crowd? You know, sometimes we may have a, particular piece we were going to run for a partner that we have to scrap at that moment because it's not the right thing for home court advantage. So we always keep that lens on at first, replays, making sure that ownership can see replays when it's time to that they really need there's so many elements. And so and that's just in the bowl, walking around the concourse, going into our store, like all of that is a part of you know my responsibility and my team. And so any given game day I'm ripping and running most of the time. And then I actually try to sit and watch the game and cheer as much as I can.
0: Well, generally speaking, just being at an NBA game in any city is my happy place and the closer I am to the court, the happier I am and and I've, you know, I've lived in some great NBA cities, but I shit you not, the first time I attended a Hawks game prior to living here was really the first time I knew I wanted to leave New York and move to Atlanta. Like the the the, the environment of a Hawks game played into my math of well, what do you want out of life and part of that is professional fulfillment. But part of that is, what are you doing during your downtime when you're seeking joy and when you're trying to share moments with your kids? And I feel like nowhere else is the diversity, the culture, the identity of Atlanta more beautifully on display than at a Hawks game. Um, What are some of the favorite ways that you've been able to tap into that unique Atlanta identity during your tenure as Hawks CMO?
1: You know, I think so much of it is just really being a part of the city you know, like going out, meeting the people, understanding kind of what's happening. We actually just created a new position um, within our organization uh, on entertainment industry relations, because knowing that we're in Atlanta and the entertainment industry is booming, not just from a music perspective, but, you know, film and production and the rest. At first, we would, you know, kind of reach out to folks and get some inbound, like, hey, this person wants to come to the game, this person. But we wanted to be more intentional about how we not just make those relationships, but grow them over time. And whether that's visiting a set and handing out you know jerseys and inviting you know uh, cast members to attend a game, or if it's pop-up concerts, I think during our playoff run, we really got smart and savvy at how we can amplify our game experience. knowing that the games would be sold out for playoffs. We said, hey, what if we got, you know, who's who of old school Atlanta performances and brought them in just to do a pop-up during a timeout? that people wouldn't expect. Surprise and delight in those ways. And so I think there's a number of different levers that we utilize, but it all starts with like being a part of the culture, going out into the city, building those relationships. And then whether it's acknowledging folks in the community that are doing great things in game, I'd say one of the biggest things we've ever done as an organization was you know, during the pandemic when we opened up our building to early voting, we would say that was one of the biggest community activations we've ever done. And I've had people that have literally said, You know, after seeing this MLK, you know, uniform, or jersey that you guys did and then, you know, how you opened up the arena for voting. I've never been a season ticket member, but I want to buy season tickets to support this organization because it's so in line with what I believe in as a person. And so having those values be aligned, but then reinforcing it through our games and then just having fun, whether it's, you know, seeing your favorite entertainer, performer, the merchandise that we have. We really do look at fashion forward. Very different than what we had been in the past because we recognize that land is full of tastemakers. So we want to create things that people want, not just because there's a Hawks logo on it because it looks cool and there's a Hawks logo on it. Um, so yeah, for all those different reasons.
0: I can't even get to and from a game without spending 200 bucks in the store every time. <laughs> it's too much. It's too much good stuff.
1: I love it. It's a great uh, thing.
0: What is your interaction with other? And you talk about it like um, I think people would be surprised to hear you describe, you know, describe it as a mom and pop operation because as we think about the NBA and the teams under that umbrella, it is, you know, it is truly one of the most valuable brands in the world. Um, What's your interaction with other NBA CMOs? Is it a fraternity? Do you guys exchange ideas? Are you competitive with each other?
1: You know, it's funny because I would say that we know each other. We'd reach out if we have questions. I just actually spoke to Julian Duncan, who's the new CMO over at the Rockets last week he was like, hey, tell me what you're doing from a, an influencer standpoint. You know, Mike McCullough, who is the CMO of the Miami Heat, was there when I was a ball girl, And so I got to present with him at a league meeting a couple of years ago. And it was like a full circle moment to me because I look up to him, you know, in so many ways because he's so amazing at all that they've done historically. And so, you know, Tracy Merrick, there's so many people around the league. And so I definitely think we have a, a a friendship, you know, across the board. I'm think it's somewhat competitive still. I mean, there's some things like, hey, we're not saying, hey, show me your city edition. Let me see what you're working on. You know, there's some of those things that are proprietary and based on what you're doing internally. But I think the NBA does a great job through Teambo, which is their team uh, marketing and business operations unit that gets all the CMOs or leads of sales and marketing together annually for NBA meetings. Um, And then if anyone has any questions, they say, Hey, you know, here's best practices from this market. They did this from a ticket sales standpoint, or for, you know, for season ticket members, you may want to consider this. And so I think that's unique to the NBA because they've been doing it for a while and they've gotten very good at that. Um, Because I have friends that are CMOs from other leagues and they're not necessarily as connected in those ways across teams. But yeah, I definitely would say it's a friendship and, you know, for the folks that, you know, when they come to town, it's like, Hey, look, I love what you did there. That's, that's cool.
0: Well, and they talk about like, you know, there's only 400 guys at any given time who are, who get to say they're in the NBA and there's only 32 guys who get to say they're coaches and there's only 32 people who get to say that they're the CMO of an NBA team at any given moment too. So, you know, it's a pretty tight knit group, I would think. Like if you really wanted to connect with somebody about what the real pressures and opportunities of the jobs are, there's only 31 people you can really talk, talk to about that with the, the utmost candor.
1: Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that every team is so different. And when I say mom and pop, I don't mean that in a, in a smaller disparaging way at all. It's truly like it's run based on the energy of the ownership and that, in that team and leadership, where I think if you're a big big organization and you have stakeholders and board members, and you know, we do have boards as well. um, There's a different energy there, but if there's an owner that's very much into technology, guess what? Your organization is going to be skewed that way. And so you can see in different teams just based on individual um, preferences or likes or dislikes, the way that their business is run is different. And we are incredibly blessed here in Atlanta to have such an amazing ownership team that really just thrives on building big, good, big businesses. And so because of that, I think that we're incredibly well-run, but also have the creative flexibility to do our best work. And I think that shows you know, in our game day presentation.
0: Yeah, it's uh, one of my best friends growing up uh, became an agent and so you know he's really close to the game and he's at games all the time but the curse of it is it's a little of what you said it's like man i love the game so much that i chose it as my profession and now the curse of he's that bad. is I, I i'm when i'm at the arena i'm at work you know exactly. i'm not drinking five beers you know i am in a in a in a sport coat and um, and i know you mentioned that yeah sometimes it can be hard to watch to see the game through the eyes of a fan because you're listening for the volume level on things and you're watching for very specific things on the court and hey, this promotion that we're attempting during a timeout, like, you know, are the fans engaged in this? Is this something we should scrap? And at any given second, it's a different thing you need to be paying attention to. Having said all that, you know, you got to the Hawks in your first couple of years, you, you, you oversaw some leaner teams where, hey, no matter what you do, if the product on the court isn't electric, you can't make people stop looking at their phones and being disinterested when, when they're at the game. And now the team's really exciting And I'm sure there's a more effortless feeling to, you know, that electricity that's in the building. But last year you were there for this culmination magical moment where the team makes a very unexpected run to the Eastern Conference Finals. In a very unique situation like that, did you find yourself being able to sort of enjoy it on a fan level in a way that you hadn't previously?
1: Um, you know, when I first started, we had our 61 season when we had four guys at the all-star game. And I think you can feel the energy in Atlanta and the city outside of game day. Like it's palpable people, more people are wearing their gear. There's excitement there. And so I absolutely felt that, you know, going into last season and I, well, into the last playoff run, but I think it was also a little bit of that perfect storm of the world opened up at the same time that our playoff run started. And so even getting more fans back in the building, like that energy almost took it to a whole different level because people had been inside for so long or hadn't been into the arena, hadn't seen games. Um, And so as an adjustment, I think for us and our team, it was crazy because we went from zero to 5,000 and then hadn't stopped on the 5,000 for a while. But interesting about that, I had um, a family member who was overseas in uh, Abu Dhabi teaching for years and she was coming back in July. And I remember around December of that year, I'd spoken to my boss and said, hey, you know, I really wanted to visit my cousin. I want to take my daughter uh, to Dubai. And he was like, plan the trip, we should go. And I was like, well, you know, playing, He's like, it's okay, just plan it. And so I planned this 10 day trip. <laughs> it actually happened during our, our final series. And so I was in Dubai um, for most of it. I was back before the series ended. But every game, I was up. I want to say four thirty in the morning. I was in meetings at eleven thirty p.m. We didn't know if we were had to plan a parade or not, so we were getting things underway and just learning from other teams about that. And so it was probably one of the most stressful trips that I've ever taken. I'm glad I went. Uh, my daughter had a ball, but you know, it's those things that you you can't you can't buy that. Like it was awesome, but incredibly stressful at the same time.
0: Well, I forgot that the the playoffs last year was the. They of, ran super late. Well, and it was the it was the opening of arenas. I, I was there for Game Three Hawks Knicks was, which was the first game of full attendance yeah. in the COVID season, and you just you forgot what it felt like to be in a crowd. I, I mean, I was moved to tears. It was such yeah. a powerful feeling to be back with people.
1: It elevated that feeling that you would have. So, I w- and having been there previously in a very different time to that, it was almost like magic. In certain ways, and then when we won, I was actually in the Garden when we won that series, and that was my first time ever going to a game in the Garden, and that was, I had an out of body experience. It was so amazing.
0: Yeah, in the wake of George Floyd, a lot of brands, in and out of sports, uh, posted you know hashtag hashtag Black Lives Matter, and that was sort of that. You've taken social activism multiple steps further um, under your leadership. As mentioned, the Hawks became the first team in the NBA to open up their building for early voting. Uh, you've led partnerships to create access and opportunities for people of color in the community. I just wonder, how do you think about the role that you play in the broader community above and beyond the product that's on the court or the relationship between sort of fans and teams on the most kind of transactional sports level?
1: Yeah, I mean, we say that we're true to Atlanta, but we genuinely mean it. You know, So for the pandemic, it was like, what does our community need right now? And food insecurity was huge. And so we really dove into that. For every you know Black Lives Matter hashtag we had our ownership come out the very beginning and said, Hey, Black Lives Matter, there's no in between. But having strong footing and perspective in that helped our entire organization because we knew where we stood. We didn't have to tiptoe around or dance and think of you know what should we do, how should we respond, which was helpful. But then we took it a step further as an organization and decided, you know put your money where your mouth is. And the idea of looking at economic empowerment for people of color as the way to really get some sense of you know, equity was something that our ownership believed in and invested in. And so we as an organization have kind of taken that a step further and built programs for entrepreneurs here in Atlanta, even with our MLK uniform, deciding we were going to donate 100% of the proceeds back to women entrepreneurs in the city of Atlanta that we could actually go and give and be participants in their programs and help to yeah, I was teaching master classes on marketing. So it wasn't just doing it, it's also creating the programming behind it, not just cutting a check. And so I know that's something that we as an organization believe in that we're going to continue to do regardless of what's happening in the news.
0: Yeah. Uh, in your book, From Ball Girl to CMO, which we mentioned earlier, you talk a lot about self reflection and you present a framework for defining guiding principles that anyone can use to help direct life decisions. Uh, Can you share a little bit of what those principles are, some of those guiding principles?
1: Absolutely. I call them my starting five. Um, And I've had mentors that kind of share the importance of guiding principles to me. I didn't understand it when I was young, you know. And I remember when I graduated college and I started at Turner, I didn't know what branding was. I met a woman named Jennifer Dorian, who was the head of branding at the time, who was amazing. And so I decided I wanted to pursue that. And I went to grad school in London, focused on brand strategy came back to Atlanta and I wanted a brand job and there was nothing there. And so I kind of had to do the job I wanted before I got it. And it's funny because like maybe three years later, I got my first brand job and it was like, all right, you know, I think I was a director of brand strategy. And then I had no idea what was next. I was like, I can't retire now. I was like 25, 26. And so it just really got me thinking in a different way of how do you, what does success mean? Because if you're doing it to chase a title, once you achieve that title, then so what? And so the idea of these guiding principles are more like a set of values and filters that I'll look at at any opportunity in my life. And if those things ladder up to my guiding principles, then it could be a good decision for me. Um, And so for me, my first one is the ability to be both creative and strategic because I was in all creative jobs you know, back in the day as a designer, and it wasn't for me. I've been in all business strategy jobs too, and that wasn't for me. But when I can blend those two things together, that's when I know that it's success. Uh, for me. Um, My second is I get bored really, really easily. (laughs) And so I need to be adding more tools to my personal toolbox. That could be taking on a new department, new tasks, like new industry, whatever way. But if I could do a job in my sleep, I don't want it. So if another NBA team tomorrow says, hey, come be CMO of this NBA team, I don't think that that would be something I'd be interested in based on that fact alone, unless there was something drastically different about it. Um, The third, my mom was really bad with money growing up. Uh, I I actually, I had everything I could ever want or dream, but then when she retired, she had nothing. And so I ended up being a caregiver to my mom when I was a freshman in college because she went on disability. And so I always thought of that. And so I think now that I have a daughter who's seven, I want to make sure that I don't repeat those mistakes. So being able to pay my bills on time used to be the guiding principle, but now it's investing in her future and establishing some sort of generational wealth. That's really important to me. Um, my fourth one is I really believe there's no such thing as work-life balance because sometimes the balance will be work, sometimes the balance will be life, um, but I believe in work-life harmony. And if you can find harmony in between where if I need to leave you know, my office at three o'clock on a Thursday to go to a swim class for my daughter, knowing that I can do that, um, but also having the flexibility to go take a trip to Dubai and during the NBA playoffs in a critical time, but knowing that work can still happen. And I think the pandemic has obviously shown everyone that there is more flexibility that is feasible in life. So if I have that level of flexibility, that's important. And my last one is authenticity. So regardless of wherever I am, what I do, I want to be able to bring 100% of myself to work or to whatever I'm doing every day. And so even culturally, I am not a pantsuit chick. That's not my vibe. But if I can rock my sweatpants and my Jordans, then that makes life happy, then that's good for me, but I also want to be able to build a team where I can encourage everyone else to bring their full self to work every day um, and not have to, you know, assimilate or feel like they have to become a part of a different culture that they can be who they are. So those are my guiding principles. And since I've established them, they haven't really changed very much. They've evolved a little bit, but they're still very core to who I am and how I operate.
0: Well, and if your daughter is seven now, then by, by my by my math, I mean, she was one when you took the job. And as you've come into your own, not just as a CMO, but as a mother, have you found that mothership, excuse me, have you found that motherhood has changed your leadership style in any tangible way?
1: Um, you know, it's actually pretty interesting. I was two months old. She was two months old when I started um, kind of consulting for the Hawks before I came on board full time. And at that time, the organization was different. We had different ownership at that time. And I remember I was breastfeeding her and there was no lactation room. There was nowhere to go. And so I would have to run home and then run back if I was in the office. And so, you know, Steve Coonan, our CEO, and I sat down. And so we said, you know, how could we make this a better environment for women? And so we talked about it. And there were some things put in place to kind of help me, but then to help all mothers at the time. And so now we're a very different culture, but I started out with her being there. And so I would bring her to the office. And so now if she has a day off from school, she'll come in my office and sit. And so there are other women working for the organization that see that and know that that's okay and that's acceptable. And I think that's a key difference. I remember when I first started, there was a young lady um, who was working uh, there at the time. And she said, wow, I've never seen a woman be vice president with a child you know, in this company. Um, because the thought process was whenever a woman had a kid, she either got demoted or left the company based on the demands of sports. And I was like, that's terrible. But even just me being there with my daughter and bringing her to games and having her come, even when she comes now, like she'll walk, everyone knows her cause they've seen her grow up. You know, I love that, but I also love that I can set the example by being an example, you know, and doing that.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, the final question, it's a big one, which is after becoming famous for your persistence to get your first job with the Miami Heat, do you find that young people wanting to break into sports use that as an excuse to call and email you incessantly about mm-hmm. wanting a job and not taking no for an answer and pounding the pavement? Is this the curse of persistence that you've you've cast upon yourself?
1: It's so funny, but no, not at all. You know, it's interesting because I had so many... Great people that opened up their doors, had informational meetings with me, you know, and I'm grateful for it. And now I I made a commitment to myself early on. I was like, I'm going to help everybody I can, you know, and then LinkedIn happened. And there's no way that I would be able to respond to every single note that I get that says, hey, I'm in college. I'm a sophomore, junior, senior. I just want to pick your brain and talk to you about how you got to where you are. And part of me is I appreciate that energy, but I think the the persistent part of me is like, you didn't even try, you know? So I really, I've now been much more of like, I can't respond to all those messages. I have a book. I wrote a whole book about how I got there. So if someone's like, hey, I read your book. I have a question about this specific thing. I respect that so much more because it shows that they took effort. They didn't just Google or read an article or like, hey, let me just sense a generic one line, and so a lot of the work and the effort that I put in, I don't think people really do that anymore. It's very rare that someone takes something to the next level where they would send something in the mail or, you know, really try to stand out above and beyond. Hey, I just really want to talk to you. Yeah. Hey, a, a DM, you know, like people are so, it's just, it's too, it's not, it's too easy, but and I'm accessible, you know, like I'm there, see me at a game and there are folks that have been like, hey, I'd like to sit and talk to you. Cool, Let's let's do it, but- it's a different world these days. It's a completely different world.
0: People are not as persistent as you might think. I mean, there's That's so many cool. times where I feel like if someone knew how to come correct and like show me they wanted something, I would I would it would be such a breath of fresh air. I what, love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, and 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 that that um can I pick your brain or can I talk to you? It's like it's such a flawed approach. I haven't written a book, but it's like everything that I think about advertising and everything that people way smarter than me think about advertising exists on you know 60 episodes of a podcast. But, but your question is about how I can help you who is a stranger versus like, why don't you think about this a different way? Which is, yeah, what if you came to me either with a really specific question that showed me that you were tapped in or had a curiosity that was worth my curiosity or with, here's a way that I think I might be able to be additive to you versus hi, I'm a stranger. Here's how you can help me. You know, it's just, it's very hard to get a response when that's your approach.
1: Yeah. I have a whole chapter in my book on how to be an asset, not a liability when networking. And it's a hundred percent about that. Even if you get the time and you get the 30 minutes, if you make it all about like, I want a job, I want to know, I, 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 nowhere in that have you been an asset to me at all, other than a liability on my time. And so really asking people, what are your points of pain? What are your passions? What keeps you up at night? Whatever it is. And then offering something. It could be then, could be after the session, whatever it is, but something of value that really lets someone know that, oh, wow, you really thought about this. But I feel like people are much more selfish and a lot less selfless in terms of how they approach even networking.
0: Yeah. Before I let you go, I did notice in the ESPN profile about you, you, it ended with you saying, You don't know what you want to be when you grow up. You're still a young woman, but you've also reached incredible heights. What do you mean by you don't know what you want to be when you grow up?
1: You know, when we were talking about even being an artist, I knew I didn't want to be a struggling artist, but it was like I was always like, what what is that creative job? You know, if someone asked me freshman year of college, I had a good friend, Sandra. She knew she was going to be a doctor. She was pre-med. That was her route. She's now a doctor living in Pittsburgh, doing well asked me what I wanted to be. I was like, I don't know. It's cool. I kind of fell into communications because I liked uh, cultural anthropology. I took a class and I wanted to know why people did what they did. So my curiosity led me to anthropology and actually dropped the major my sophomore year. So I ended up becoming a communications major based on credits. People like, oh, that's the easy major that all the athletes take. I loved it. So I didn't even care. But through all of that, like, what are you doing it for? What are you doing it towards? And I was like, I don't know. So even right now that I'm CMO of this NBA team, people are like, oh, did you always know? I had no clue. You asked me nine years ago before I got this job, would i be, I'd be like, I, that sounds cool. I have no idea. I wouldn't say no, but I wouldn't say yes. And so when I get the question of what's next, where do you go after this? I have no clue, but I know that I have my guiding principles. So as opportunities or you know, things come up, I always will have a conversation and bet it against that. But you know where I am right now is fantastic. And I appreciate, you know, all that I'm still learning and growing in on a daily basis because the world is evolving. Um, But yeah, so when I say I don't know what I want to be like, I truly don't. I just want to live a happy life. Yeah.
0: Well, Melissa, my big plan is to sell my company to a holding company in 20 years and then become the Jack Nicholson of State Farm Arena. So if you're (laughs) guiding... If your guiding principles keep you in this role long-term, I, I look forward to getting to know you much better from my vantage point, sitting courtside at Hawks games hey, for the next 40 about years. About
1: 20 years, man. I want to be sitting there with you. That's that's <laughs> the goal.
0: <laughs> it was so lovely talking to you. Thanks for making the time and thanks for your story and, and all the inspiration um, that it holds. And, and go Hawks.
1: Go Hawks. Thank you so much for having me and I appreciate the invite. I love this.
0: Okay. Talk soon. Thanks. Take care. Okay, thank you so much to the great Melissa Proctor. Thank you, as always, to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, my friend, Mr. Jeff Fiorello. And as always, friends, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, share it with a friend or colleague. Send it all agency at the agency that you work at. Tell everyone that you work with to listen to it. If they don't, they don't care about their jobs and getting better at what they do. And that's just a blanket statement that I'm prepared to defend. And until we talk again, peace.